y'all this afternoon. I want to talk today about eternity. And I want to start by just sharing a short story that a friend of mine told me. This friend is a leader in his church, and um, he was counseling a woman at his church who was strongly considering getting a divorce. And as he was he was counseling her against this and showing her from the scriptures how God feels about divorce, but, but she was very unhappy in, in her marriage and honest, she was just not interested in what God thought about it. She, she wanted out. And as they were having this conversation, he suddenly felt the Holy Spirit prompt him very clearly to ask her the question, do you know when you're going to die? And he thought, whoa, that's, that's very intense. <laughs> but... Um, it, was, it was a very strong prompting, and so he, he kind of carefully asks her, like, hey, do you, do you know when you're going to die? And, you know, she looks at him a little bit weird, but, you know, she, she ignores the question and just kind of continues to vent about her husband. And he, he asks her again, hey, do you know when you're going to die? And she, she brushes off the question and um, is clearly not interested in discussing what seems to be a very weird rabbit hole when, when she's complaining about her marriage. But again, just he's, he's starting to get a little frustrated now, but he really feels like he needs to get this point through. And so he asks her a third time, a little bit less patience. God told me to ask you, do you know when you're going to die? And suddenly she just turns pale and she leaves and immediately went and reconciled to her husband. Why was that such an effective wake-up call to this woman? Well, I think it's because in that moment, she was given the perspective of the eternal consequences of her actions. And suddenly, the, the temporary difficulties of her marriage didn't seem that significant anymore. And so, that's what I want to talk about today, keeping an eternal perspective. So let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3. All right, 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorance and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word uh, to, to guide us, to convict us, to instruct us. We pray that you would give us understanding of your word this morning as we seek to set our minds on eternity, as we seek to prepare for the day of your son's return. Would you send your Holy Spirit and give us understanding of your word. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. This is such a, a rich chapter. I, I really love the book of Second Peter. And before we dive into this chapter, I want to just start with a little bit of context. Um, what is Peter's reason for writing here? Well, he actually says it twice in the book. Um, first in uh, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 13. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And again, he says in chapter 3, to stir them up by way of reminder. In fact, uh, he knows that he is about to die. Verse 14 says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So, we can view this epistle as, as Peter's dying words, essentially. And because he knows he's about to die, he's working hard to get both his encouragements and his warnings into writing so that the church can have these. And so, what does Peter want to stir the church up about before he dies? This, this context is really fascinating to me because... Um, just, just that thought of him knowing that he doesn't have very long left. And so he only has one message, really, that he can still get out. And he has to think to himself, okay, what is, if I can only really preach one thing to this church, what am I going to preach to them? And so it's, it's really, literally just powerful because of that context. And we see that there are two main themes in this epistle. One is he wants to stir up the church to live a holy life. 
We, we see this in chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, a very famous passage where he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he gives an encouragement to the church of all these virtues that they should be pursuing to be effective and fruitful in their walks with the Lord. The second main theme of this epistle is he wants the church to be aware of false teachers. Chapter 2 is, is really a terrifying picture of the wrath of God for those who lead others into false teaching and into sin. Um, he, he describes these teachers as waterless springs and mists driven by a storm for whom the gloom of utter darkness is reserved. And so he is giving a very strong warning because he wants the church to be ready and aware there are false teachers they're seeking to lead you into sin and into false teaching. You should be ready for this. So, an exhortation to holiness and a warning that false teachers will rise up. With that context, let's look at chapter 3. So, having established these twin themes of uh, exhortation and warning, he gets into a specific doctrine that the false teachers are denying, which is the second coming of Christ. So verse 1 of chapter 3 says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I, I thought that phrase was interesting, sincere mind. It's just a very interesting way of putting it. And the, the alternate, the literal meaning of, of sincere there is, is pure as when examined by sunlight and, and opposite to having the understanding darkened. And so... He really is emphasizing that he, he wants the believers to have true understanding of what he's saying. I, I saw a comment here from uh, the Geneva Bible, which is, is one of the oldest translation, English translations of the Bible. It's actually 51 years before the King James Version came out, the original King James. And it's also famous because it's pretty much the first study Bible. And so it was, it was very, very popular because it had all these study notes in there, which, which was very, and it was very widely available. And it, they're all like very simple. And so the note under, under this verse was simply, for we, quickly fall, for we fall quickly asleep and forget that which we are taught. And so the way to a pure mind and, to, and the antidote to falling asleep is, is constant reminder, this stirring up our sincere minds. Which then begs the question, well, what is he reminding us of? So... Verse 2, he says, That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Okay, again, very interesting here that it's the singular word commandments, not plural commandments. I, I, I saw that and thought to myself, huh, well, well, which one? There's so many commandments. Which commandments are we being admonished to remember here? And I think there's, there's multiple options, right? It could be referring to the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It could also uh, be just a commandment to have faith, 
there's there's a lot of options here but I, I think what makes the most sense with the context here is the commandment to be ready for Christ's return I, I think this because it's paired with the predictions of the prophets so you can see here you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles and all throughout the context of this chapter and, and this book really is this emphasis to be ready for the day of the Lord. And so I, I think that the commandment here is for us to be ready for Christ's return. And so and that's my first point. We must actively prepare for Christ's return. There's so many uh, verses I could cite here, but I want to I wanna pull up a couple where uh, Jesus is talking about this. The first is Matthew 20, uh, 24, 44. You don't have to turn to all of these. I have, I have a lot of references here. The first says, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Second passage here is Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And we, we see this beautiful picture of the bride actively preparing herself for her groom, who is Jesus. And the preparation that the bride is doing, um, the way that she is dressing herself with this fine linen, what this is, is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so it's an active preparing for Christ's return with good deeds. And the third, um, I want to share a little bit of a longer passage, very well known, the parable of the ten virgins, which is Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, where Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So scripture instructs us uh, very clearly that the waiting for Christ's return is not passive, but active. My second point, the key to faithful waiting is awareness of the coming judgment. So continuing um, in verse three of Second uh, Peter chapter three, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So one thing that, that stood out to me is in, in verse, uh, let me go back to it. Verse 5 says that they deliberately overlook this fact. Right? They deliberately overlook the second coming of Christ. And it's, it's just interesting to me that there's, it seems like there's a choice here, right? It's, it's deliberate. They are choosing to not, or they're deliberately forgetting God's past judgment in the flood and the, the coming judgment in fire. So Peter sets up here this, a, a contrast between remembering and forgetting, right? Where the false teachers are deliberately forgetting the coming judgment, whereas the saints are remembering this and, and constantly being mindful of this. And Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 24, 37 to 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So I'm, I'm sure that Peter was referencing Jesus' statement here. It's very, very similar. And the point of both of these statements is up until Jesus' return, everything will be business as usual for most people. It's, it's in the same way that false teachers will look around and, and say, look, the, the sun rose this morning, just like it did yesterday, just like it did the day before that. Um, Jesus came and went, life goes on, right? There's nothing new that's happening, and so what are we doing waiting for, for Christ's return? Um, but we must be wise and, and understand that the last days are actually now, right? Because there's, there's this idea sometimes where, where we picture kind of the days of Christ's return as like this future era, right? Where, where these, these last days, when all the really dramatic things happen, that's then, and we're, I guess, in... The, the normal days, right? We have, we have the last days then, um, and, and we're just kind of in, in regular times now. But scripture is actually very clear that whenever you, you hear the word last days, that's, that's talking about now. That's talking about the church age, the entire church age, actually. A couple of references here, First John chapter 2, 18, actually right after uh, this chapter in Second Peter. Children, it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So, if it was the last hour 2,000 years ago, where, where are we now? It must be the last minute. Second Timothy chapter 3, 1-5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, 
reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. When I, when I read this, it, it sounds like today. It sounds like all of human history, really. It seems to me that when we look at just the last 2,000 years, sometimes there's points where society is kind of slightly better and slightly worse. This, this sinfulness of society kind of ebbs and flows, but it's constantly there, right? If when we read these things, lovers of self, lover of money, right? Greedy, uh, lovers of pleasure. These are things that, that's, this is not some future era, right? This is now. Lastly, and maybe the clearest sign that last days is referring to the entire church age, is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, which says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, it's clear that despite all things continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, um, we are in the last days, and the day of the Lord is coming. And we have to live our lives with this understanding that the day of the Lord is coming. I want to do a, a quick exercise here. I'm sure that we've all heard or, or kind of thought of the question, what would you do if today was your last day on earth? Right? And, and people usually say this as kind of like an exhortation, like, oh, you should live every day to the fullest. Um, and I, I want to modify this question just a little bit and, and ask, what would you do if this was your last year on earth? If, if God comes to you in a dream and he says, okay, you have one year left, use it well, what, what would that do to you? Um, how would we spend that year? I think a lot of us would say something like, well, I would, I would evangelize way more. Right? I would go and, and talk to all my friends and family about Jesus. I would go knock on doors. I would go preach from the streets. You'd, you'd probably put a lot more time into ministry, into outreach, into service, because we know that time is short. So my question is, why don't we just live like that all the time? Right? Why, why would we need some kind of reminder that, hey, you only have one year left, time is short? Um, why do, why do we feel like we need something like that to really feel the urgency? Right? And I think it's because we live under this illusion that we have a long life ahead of us. And we see this principle, just in life in general, that brevity creates urgency. Right? When we've got a deadline coming up at work, we feel all of this pressure build up and we think, okay, now it's really time to perform. I need to get this assignment done. I need to do this, um, finish this work because... Um, it needs to get done, right? The deadline is coming up. Um, but most of our lives, we don't really feel that urgency because we don't think of ourselves as living in the last days, right? We don't see the deadline coming up in that way. And so we need to change our mindset to be constantly aware of the coming day of the Lord. Um, but the difference is our urgency is, should not come from a pressure to meet the deadline, right? But out of a sincere love for God and an urgent desire to share this with the lost. But I want to encourage us to develop this urgency within ourselves. Of, the deadline is coming up, right? We are currently in the last days. Jesus is coming back. So let's feel this pressure of, wow, I, I may not have more than a year, right? Jesus could come back next year. And so I need to get to work, 
right? So, but that does beg the question, what do we do with the fact that it's been 2,000 years, right? These are some pretty long last days. Um, 2,000 years is a lot of days. So let's keep reading. Verses 8 to 10, which says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the third point that I want to make is God's delay is his mercy. We see here that the reason that God is waiting for Christ's return is because he's patiently giving the world time to repent. My pastor at the church I grew up at actually pointed out once that this is really the solution to the problem of evil. And what is, what is the problem of evil? Atheists sometimes say that if God was truly all-loving, um, he would put a stop to evil. Right? And so the fact that evil continues on earth means that God is either not all-loving or not all-powerful. Right? It's a common argument you'll hear against the existence of the God of the Bible. Um, but here's the issue. For God to put a stop to evil means one thing, judgment day. And what people don't think about is if God were to put a stop to evil, he would put a stop to you. But thanks be to God that he's giving us time to repent. Right? It's because of his mercy that he's not intervening right now, putting a stop to all evil, because that would mean that many have not repented yet. And so his patience is giving sinners time to repent, patiently bearing with their sins, but um, allowing them the chance to uh, repent. And a similar um, passage, not, not necessarily similar to that point, but, but just the idea of God's patience is what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we know that Christ's return won't happen until every nation, every people has heard the gospel. Um, and it, again, it's because of his mercy on people that he's waiting to come back. And I, I love this verse that um, we, we just see God's heart for the nations in this passage, right? That, that every tribe and tongue will have heard the gospel and they will have had the chance to repent and encounter his love before he comes back and to judge all of the nations. The fourth point that I want to make is that by living holy lives, we can actually hasten the day of the Lord. So let me read verses 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, this is, this is the passage that 
really led me to preach on this chapter in the first place. I think about it all the time, and it is absolutely astonishing to me. What this says is that you, tiny little you, made from the dust of the ground, are able to hasten the return to reveal the new creation to hasten the return of the creator of the universe who will set fire to the heavens. Praise God. <laughs> I mean, this is absolutely insane, right? When we think about it, that we are able to participate in God's plan of salvation in this personal way, in this direct way, that our actions in this small, short life can have this monumental of an impact on the entire universe. It's astonishing. And so even more amazing is, is when we think of just the principles of Jesus' kingdom and, and what these things are, right? Christ's return, Christ's return will not be hastened by the rich and powerful plotting in vain, but by the poor widow giving out of her poverty all that she had, by the missionary preaching to the forgotten tribe in the jungle, by the martyr giving their life for the cause of Christ. These are the things that will hasten the return of our Lord. Therefore, I always look for the therefores in, in the epistles because it's like everything is leading up to this. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So all of these things, the imminent return of Jesus, the love and patience that we see in his plan, the um, incredible chance to participate in his plan should motivate us to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace, right? With the peace that we have in our salvation. A passage that I, I think about all the time that I wanted to tie into this is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 16, which says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. There's something about that phrase, the days are evil, that, that really has always stuck out to me. Um, and, and I think it's, it, it really emphasizes how we are to spend our time now. Because it's, as I was getting at earlier, we're usually not in an eternity mindset, right? We're usually just kind of caught up in the day-to-day, -day, just in, in the worries of life, in, in relationships, in jobs, um, because we don't feel this urgency, right? Because we're not thinking about the heavens being dissolved in fire. We're not thinking about the coming judgment. And so this, this reminder, like, actually, the days that we're living in are evil, Right? We are currently in the last days. We are in a time of profound sinfulness. Um, and this should stir us up to be careful, to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, and to make the best use of the time. Continuing verses 15 to 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, 
as they do the other scriptures. Here's, here's another really interesting phrase to me. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The patience of the Lord as salvation. That's such an interesting character trait of God to assign salvation to. But just as we see earlier in this chapter, right, that it's God's patience that's causing him to delay his return, to give people the chance to repent, this is how we repented, right? Because he was patient, because he did not return in judgment before we had the chance to repent, but he could have come back, right? While we were still in our sin, before we had repented, before we were washed in his blood, but, but he did not. He was patient with us. And so the patience of the Lord is our salvation. I think we should constantly be looking back at that patience of God. I think when, especially as we've perhaps grown up in the faith or we've just been walking with God for a long time, we can forget about where we were before him, right? We can forget about the sinfulness that we walked in. We can forget just how far we were from him. But we should constantly look back at the patience of our Lord as salvation. I also like the side note here, just that even Paul's fellow apostles found some of his writing hard to understand. Um, it's, it's just kind of comforting that, you know, we can read the epistles and think, wow, that, I need to stew on that one. We're, we're not alone in this. Even Peter think, wow, that's Paul. That's, that's hard to understand. <laughs> but there's a warning with this too, right? The ignorant and unstable twist these things to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so... Um, we have to be careful how we deal with the word of God. Let's close with, with verses 17 to 18, which, which is really a beautiful uh, summary of this whole book. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and into the day of eternity. Amen. And so, to summarize, my, my points are, we must actively prepare for Christ's return. The key to faithful waiting is awareness of the coming judgment. Three, God's delay is his mercy. And four, by living holy lives, we can actually hasten the day of the Lord. So I hope that these things will help us to develop a mindset focused on eternity, that we may be found awake when our master returns. Amen.